Well, if you're just joining us, we're like Aaron said, we're going through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, I hope you do, go ahead and turn there uh, or turn it on to John chapter 3. And as we're working our way there, if you were with us last week, Jesus uh, said some things and did some things that were uh, quite offensive to those that, that he was around. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we dig deep enough, it was offensive to us. In fact, he's going to start a pattern of that. And normally, a lot of times in church, we don't think of Jesus as being offensive because, uh, well, we have a watered-down Jesus in the West. We have a bearded Mr. Rogers. We have, uh, you know, he's got the sweater jacket on. He's only saying nice things, and he's only patting little children on the head. And that Jesus is nice because that Jesus doesn't make any demands on our lives. That Jesus doesn't uh, challenge our assumptions. That Je- Jesus doesn't challenge our value system. And so we, we like that Jesus, but Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is having none of that. He, he's started something last week that he's going to roll out over the next several weeks of saying things and doing things that uh, the people that uh, encounter him are going to be deeply offended by. And, and yet Jesus isn't doing that to be some sort of edgy, offensive guy Jesus is doing that because of his passion for God and his love for people. Like he left heaven in glory and, and stepped into this broken world that has gone the wrong way. And, and he knows that some of us, all of us need to be woken up. We need to be shaken at times and, and to see the light that is him. And so he's willing to uh, be offensive out of love. And so that's what you need to understand in this passage uh, as we continue through John's gospel. Even this week, uh, we're going to see that Jesus is deeply offensive. Now, I recognize any time I get to stand up and do the privilege of my life, which is to open up God's word with you, uh, that there's always three groups of people in this room. And the first is that you've come to see uh, Jesus as Lord and Savior. You've been rescued and redeemed. You've been, uh, according to this passage, you've been born again. And so uh, the goal for, for, for you and the goal each week is, we say it all the time, is just to remind you of what's true, to recalibrate what's true, because uh, there's a different narrative outside of these walls that, that wants to pull you away constantly. And so you come here, and it's our prayer that you would be encouraged, that you'd be convicted where necessary. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're putting Jesus and, and the truth in front of you, and, and you would be uh, just filled up and ready to go once again. So that's our prayer for you, and that's my prayer for you this morning. And then there's, there's others of you that know full well you're not a believer. You, you, you don't believe, but for whatever reason you're in this room, you're not even sure why you're in this room. Maybe you're, you're honoring family members. Maybe you're, a friend invited you. You just know you're not a believer, and, and we're so glad you're here. We're glad, we, we know you're here and we're, we're, we're glad you're here. And there, we're, this passage tells us there's nothing I can do this morning to say to convince you otherwise. But we believe you're in a good spot because this passage also tells us that only God can open eyes. Only God can bring those that are dead spiritually to life. And so we're, we're praying for you that that would be the case, that the spirit would move in this place. But there's a third group of people in here. And this group terrifies me. It's the group that thinks they're Christians, but they're not. 
It's a group that says, I'm a Christian, and, and if you hear me say that, probably you're thinking, yeah, Mark, preach it, because this person needs to hear it. Uh, because you look at your life, and you say, I look at CNN, and I'm, I'm pretty good. I don't murder. I don't do these things. Morally, my, my moral accounts are higher than my moral bankruptcy account. And you might give a list of reasons why. You say, well, I, I, I served in the church, so I must be a Christian. Or I was born into a Christian family. I was baptized when I was a kid. I, I was at a youth camp when I was 12, and I prayed to ask Jesus into my heart, and I led in the church. I was an elder. I was a deacon. I was a missionary. You would give this long list of reasons why you are a follower of Jesus, but, but Jesus would say, you're not. There's a passage at the end of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon who ever lived. So before we go to John, I want to just pull up this. I'll have it on the screen here in just a minute. At the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says some of the most terrifying things I I think the church could ever hear. He, He says this, verse 21 of chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? That's an impressive list of spiritual activity, by the way. If we had a demon exorcist ministry, like I'm not just taking anyone to come out with me on that. I'm taking the the varsity level who I say Christians. Like they're casting out demons. They're they're prophesying in in Jesus' name. They're doing many, many mighty works in Jesus' name. And they're, they're claiming those as their right to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says in verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There was no... There was no love for Christ. There was a love for maybe what Christ could provide. There was a a love for uh, doing ministry and doing a lot of things in Jesus' name, but there there was no new life. There was a long list of reasons why uh, they're, they're good, and, and maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're like, no, I'm good because I'm in church on Mother's Day, uh, and, and that's why I, I'm going to get into heaven, or I, I prayed prayers, I fast, I give to the church, I, I list all these reasons, and Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Uh, several years ago, we, were, we, would take all these, we would take several trips to Thailand, to an orphanage, where we'd partner there on a service trip, and we'd, we'd do vacation Bible schools and uh, different service projects. And we took a lot of different teams, and, and one team was a women's team that my wife led, and, and she led the women there, and after serving about halfway through the week, uh, they're eating dinner together, and uh, the women are just kind of sitting down, and they're, they're marveling at the grace and mercy of God. They're marveling at what God has done in their lives. And they're, they're talking about, one, one was just talking about, like, just how the joy that she feels in the experience of knowing Jesus. And, and then there was this other girl, Shannon. She, she uh, began to look around from face to face, and, and she began to ask questions like, what are you guys talking about? And, and they just kind of uh, said, well, you know, just what it means to be a Christian. Like, God has rescued us and redeemed us, but he, he's, he's our treasure. And, and, and she's like, really? Like, what, what do you mean by that? And they began to explain more, the gospel. And, and she got up and her face turned white and she said, I think I'm going to throw up. And she left. 
And so they're like, well, what in the world is going on there? And so my wife got up and, and went to her and said, uh, found her crying on the side of the restaurant and said, what, what's wrong? What's up, Shannon? She said, my whole life, I, I, I thought I was a Christian. My whole life, I, I thought that uh, I, I was told by my mom and otherwise that, that I was good enough, I was strong enough, that I, I just needed to uh, reach down deep and, and find it in me. And so I've kind of added Christianity to that. But, but I, I don't know Jesus like the way you know Jesus. And I don't think I'm a Christian. I don't know what that's like to delight in the Lord. And the tears continue to stream down her face. This passage that we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 3 is, is really just foundational to what it means to be a Christian. I want to, some of the, two of the greatest coaches of all time, Dean Smith and Vince Lombardi, they were known for getting back to the basics. So Vince Lombardi, uh, at the beginning of every training camp, would hold up the ball and he would say to the guys, this is a football. And then they would go on to win championships. Because they knew that it's, you don't move past the foundation. You, you don't go beyond that. It, as Luther would say, to progress in the Christian life is always to begin again. It's always to begin again. So in some ways, this is very basic, very foundational. And one of the dangers of this passage is, if you spend any time in church at all, it's, it's very familiar. And I hate that when we come to familiar passages is because you'll miss the depth and the riches of it if you're just like, yeah, I got that. I know that. That There is so much more going on here that is, is for us in this passage that I want to just dig into. There's, there's three questions that are going to come out of this text. And Aaron already mentioned it. It's going to talk about being born again. And so the question is, what does it mean? What, what is that? What does it mean to be born again? Number two, uh, how? How is a person to be born again? And we'll come to the third question in a moment. But before I even do that, let me just pray for us one more time as we jump into John chapter 3. Father, I come before you now in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit, and Lord, I ask that you would do that which only you can do, that which we see in this passage, that Holy Spirit, your wind would flow into this room and you would do your works. And even though we can't tell where you come from or where you're going, we would see the effects of the wind as you rescue and redeem people, that as you open blind eyes, would you give us ears to hear, minds to understand. May the meditations of, my, uh, of our hearts and the words of my lips be honoring and pleasing to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 3, in fact, we'll, we'll actually pick it up just a few verses before that from last week. Uh, last week actually sets up the next several weeks. Uh, you know, originally the, the, the Bible wasn't ri written with chapter breaks, and so uh, this is an unfortunate chapter break because it, at the end of chapter 2, uh, it says this in verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And don't, don't hear in that that Jesus knows in general the state of humanity's uh, position in life. Because the very next verse is, now there was a man. He, he knows you specifically. 
He knows each one of us individually. He knows where you're at. He knows what you wrestle with, what you doubt, what you struggle with, what you go through, what you, well, all the angst that you're feeling in this room, whatever that may be, Jesus knows. He created you for, your, for, for God's glory, and he wants to speak to you. And so he's going to speak to Nicodemus, and next week he's going to speak to a woman at a well, and the next week he's going to speak to another person. And in each case, it's, he's going to show that he knows what's in a man, and he knows what's in us. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Down in verse 10 tells us that he's the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. At its height, there was at the most 6,000 Pharisees. Uh, We have a very skewed view of Pharisees, and I just always want to push against that because uh, the Pharisees were were legit. I mean, they were respected, the most respected people uh, in ancient Israel. They, they were people that studied this word. They were people that memorized this word. They memorized the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Like any of you actually ever read through Deuteronomy <laughs> or Numbers? You get to like Numbers 8 every year, like I'm going to do it. You get to Numbers 8, you're like, I'm going back to the New Testament. Well, they had it memorized. And they studied Israel's history, and they saw, man, the people of of God throughout history had been unfaithful and had not followed God's law. And so they said, we're not going to be like that. We're going to do everything we can in our power to follow the Ten Commandments. And in so doing, we're going to create 624 other laws around that so we don't break them. So did you know Nicodemus would never spit in the dirt on a Saturday? Like, well, what are you talking about? Nicodemus wouldn't spit on the dirt on a Saturday because the Pharisees said that there's no work on the Sabbath. And uh, some people work by building buildings, and and they do it by mixing mortar and, and putting water to mud. And so if you were to spit and the water hits the mud, you're creating mortar. And so Nicodemus would never spit in the dirt. He'd spit on a rock on a Saturday. He was a rock spitter. We think that's kind of ridiculous, but you have your own thing. We have our own thing, right? Like somehow thinking that that's going to earn God's pleasure. Like I don't cuss, so God must be really happy with me. Like God's going to be up in heaven and be like, I saw you got cut off and you didn't curse. Welcome to the kingdom of God. (laughs) You're like, well, I don't don't see rated R movies, Lord, unless they're about you. And then I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll buy the whole theater and we'll, we'll check it out. And on the way to the theater, I'm not going to cuss when they get cut off, but then we're going to see you crucified. And, and that's why you should let me in, Jesus. I mean, we have our own ridiculous things. So let's not be too hard on Nicodemus here. He's simply trying to pursue the kingdom of God. Not only that, it says he was a, a ruler of the Jews. He's a Sadducee. That's kind of the political uh, class, upper class of, of the Jews. So he's a religious leader. He's a political leader. That means he's, he's an old man. He's gi- given his whole life to the pursuit of God. And Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. He's the, he's the professor of divinity for Israel. So if anyone had a question, if anyone said, how, do, how does someone get to the kingdom of heaven? And, and they wrestled with it. They'd say, go ask Nicodemus. He knows. Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. And so he was, he was used to people coming to him. He was uh, enlightened. 
He was enlightened. He was the guide for the blind. And then in verse 2, it says, Nicodemus, this man came to Jesus by night. He came to Jesus by night. Now, now that's interesting because one, on the one hand, I believe that's when he really came to Jesus. But on the other hand, in John's gospel, he's always playing these things off. Night represents darkness, represents blindness. This enlightened one, this bearer of light is coming to the light of the world at night and he's engaging him. And and even in this passage, there's going to be this play of light and darkness, blindness and sight that is going to get played out. It says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs unless that you do unless God is with them. He gives them a compliment. The teacher of Israel, the, the highest ranking person in the land, comes to this untrained rabbi and he honors him. He says, hey, rabbi, we know you're from God. We, we don't know who he represents in that moment, but he's complimenting Jesus. And he's right in, in doing so. <coughs> but remember, Jesus knows what's in a man. And he doesn't. He doesn't just say, oh, really? I'm so glad you're on board. You know, together, you know, we could really make, make some progress on the kingdom of God front. No, he doesn't do that. He grabs hold of the conversation. We, we don't even know why Nicodemus came because Jesus so quickly grabs hold of the conversation because he is urgent about this man's need. Jesus answered him. We don't know what the question is, but verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, Nicodemus, you're an old man. You've given your whole life to what you think is the pursuit of God. But unless a man is born again, you won't even see it. At this point, Nicodemus drops the politeness, is offended by this. Who is this guy to, to, to lecture me? I'm the teacher, not the student. And so Jesus says something quite offensive to this guy who's given his whole life. If anyone was to get into the kingdom of God by his righteousness, it would be Nicodemus. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus drops his pretense, said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can there be a second Mother's Day? If that sounds a little bit crass to you, because it is. He said, that's ridiculous, Jesus. No, no, no. Uh, our, our life is set in stone in our past. We can't go back. In fact, I don't need to go back. I, I've lived a life of righteousness. If, if anyone gets in, it's me. And that's why people come to me, Jesus. See, I, I don't think he's stupid. He's not really wondering, can you crawl up in your mother's womb again? He understands metaphor. He just says, that's ridiculous. No one gets a second chance. Jesus says, not not only do you need a second chance, it's your only hope. Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it's, it's bad enough that you can't see it, but you can't enter it. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then he says this, do not marvel that I said that to you. He says, don't be surprised by this. Down in verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
It maybe sounds a little bit confusing. What, what should he have understood? That this man who had memorized the Bible, what should he have understood? This man who's the teacher of the people of God, what should he have understood? Jesus is acting like this should be a no-brainer, Nicodemus. Did you really think you could get to heaven on your own righteousness? That's ridiculous. You should have understood Genesis chapter 3. That when, the, when sin entered the world, that, that the fall came and all of humanity was marred and spiritual death entered the world, you were dead, Nicodemus. It wasn't that you needed a little bit of help. You needed new life. And all your religious striving doesn't bring you new life. He should have understood Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitfully, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? He should have understood Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become one who is unclean. All, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. You should know this. Every righteous deed you've done, Nicodemus, is a filthy rag before a holy and just and perfect God. You, you should have known this. Do not marvel, Nicodemus. This should have been obvious. Well, well, Jesus says, unless someone's born of water and the Spirit, what, what does that mean? Well, Nicodemus should have known what that meant. He should have known Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, the prophet is prophesying about the day when the Messiah would come and restore all things. At this point, the people are in captivity in Babylon, but, but he says there is a day that is coming when all things will be set right, and they won't be set right because of your good little boys and girls. They will be set right by God for God. And so Ezekiel 36 says this. Let me just turn there. It says, therefore, verse, actually, I'll jump down to 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. We needed a, a cleansing. We, we needed a cleansing that we couldn't bring about on ourselves. All of our attempts in ourselves to clean ourselves up fail and make things worse, according to the Bible. It's like when I was a little kid, and I, I knew this other kid that uh, he one day was in his garage, and he spilled a little bit of uh, house paint on, on the family car. So he painted the whole car. <laughs> he painted the whole car. That was his attempt. Man, I, I've messed up. There's a little bit of pain here. Better just do the whole thing. <laughs> and that's what Nicodemus is trying to do with his life. I'm just going to paint the whole thing. That's what we try to do when we think we're good enough, we're moral enough, we're upright enough. God will love us if we do these things. It's like painting the family car. And that's what Ezekiel says. God will, will cleanse us. He will, he will give us a, a, a regeneration and cleansing. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules or righteous decrees. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Nicodemus, you should have known that, that you needed a deeper cleansing. You should have known that you needed a new heart. You should have known that I will put my spirit in you when the new covenant comes. So earlier this week, uh, a pastor that uh, is quite famous, I've learned a ton from, he basically said, we, we, need, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. <laughs> 
We, we need to just not worry about that anymore. Just look at Jesus. Just look at his resurrection. The problem with that is Jesus. He hitches himself to the Old Testament and says, they testify about me. You want to know who I am? Go to the Old Testament. Go to the scriptures and learn about me. In fact, we see that, that he should have known about Ezekiel, but there's another passage he should have known about as we go on. So that, that's what it means to be born again. It, it means to have new life, a new spirit, um, have regeneration and cleansing that is done by God, for God, for our glory, for, for, for his glory and for our joy. Well, how does it happen? How does it happen? How, how do we uh, acquire this? Because as Spurgeon said, it's easier to save us from our sins than from our righteousness. And so in Ezekiel 36, he gets this picture. And in Ezekiel 37, th- there is this other picture. It's the valley of dry bones. And God takes Ezekiel, the prophet, out to this valley where there's just all these dry bones, not a little bit of flesh, nothing in them, just dry bones. And he says, prophesy over them. And he prophesies. And the wind, in Hebrew, the word for wind is ruach. And the, wind, the word for spirit in Hebrew is ruach. It's the same word. And so this wind goes, the spirit goes, and it brings these dead bones to life. It's this picture of regeneration that he just prophesied in 36. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. How is a person born again? Well, let's look at, um, that's going to pick it up. Actually, uh, Aaron had already read this, but in Ephesians 2, 1, it says, uh, and you were dead in your sins and transgressions. In, in chapter, in verse 3, it says, and you were by nature children of wrath. And so we were hopeless in and of ourselves. And so later on in Ephesians, later on, uh, just a few verses later, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, so the way that you get saved, according to Paul in Ephesians, is by grace through faith. And in fact, that's exactly what we see in Jesus' words to Nicodemus. How, how do you get born again, Nicodemus? By grace through faith. Verse 7, do you not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And by the way, when he says you must, he's not just talking to Nicodemus. Again, that's a plural you. Y'all, y'all, everybody must be born again. No one gets into the kingdom without being born again. Verse 8, the wind. Now, I said in the Old Testament, the, the word for wind is ruach. The word for spirit is ruach. In the New Testament, the word for wind is pneuma. And the word for spirit is pneuma. For, for, for whatever reason, God really wants us to associate the Spirit of God with the wind of God. So the pneuma, the wind, he's doing a play on words here. But notice what he says. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's a picture of God's sovereign grace. We don't control the spirit. We don't control the wind. But we can begin to look around and see the leaves flutter. Or maybe you've been in a hurricane or a typhoon and the wind is obvious. You don't see it, but you see the effects of the wind. He said it's going to be by God's sovereign grace. Drop down to verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. It's a picture of the incarnation. God is going to come on a rescue mission through Jesus, leaving heaven in glory, stepping into the planet on rescue mission of grace. And then verse 14, and as Moses 
lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, this is why we do not unhitch our Christianity from the Old Testament. What is he talking about there? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's talking about Numbers chapter 21. And I'll have that up on the screen as well. Numbers 21, there's this scene in the life of Israel after God has rescued them out of slavery for 400 years in Egypt and delivered them through the Red Sea and provided for them and given them food to eat. Do you know what he gave them to eat? Anyone? Manna. What is it? What is it? What is it? So, no, it's a Hebrew word, manna. It means what is it? That's, that's what it is. So that, that is actually what it is. So that's what they said. They said, manna, what is it? That's what they would eat. And God provided this manna for them. What is it? They would eat it every time. And God was providing for them. I'm, I'm not joking. It's serious. Um, and so they had the manna. They had the provision of God. But, but they, like us, began to grumble. God does not love our grumbling, by the way. God does not love uh, when we grumble before him. And so that's what they're doing. Uh, I'll pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 21 of Numbers. He says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to, of, to the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And I love this line. Just shows our grumbling hearts. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Like, what? <laughs> he said, there's no food, and we hate the food that you've given us. <laughs> They're just grumbling. It's, it's a picture of our hearts. But then look what happens. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. So that many people of Israel died. That's like my worst nightmare, by the way. I, I hate snakes. And, and that, what, that's intense. Fiery serpents? Like, what is that? That's like Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, Pit of Vipers. And they're just going through the camp. <coughs> and I, I think it means just that when they bit them, it felt like fire. And, and people were dying. Like these snakes. That, that is my worst nightmare. I've had dreams about this. And I, I hate it. Uh, but there's just snakes going everywhere, biting people. They're dying. It's God's judgment on them for their grumbling. So don't grumble this morning. Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, <clears throat> he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What in the world is that all about? From, from Genesis chapter 3 and, and throughout the Bible, the serpent is part of the curse, right? That's why I hate snakes. They, uh, uh, they're just this picture of, uh, of sin that has entered in the world. So, so the serpent is cursed. And, and, and uh, then now these serpents uh, are, are into the the camp, and they're, they're biting people. They're cursing the people. And God tells Moses, now take one of those, make a bronze serpent out of it, and put it on a pole, and lift it up. And, and when people, by faith, look at the 
serpent on the pole, I will heal them. I will heal them. And then Jesus says, many, many, many centuries later, just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So what is going on there? Jesus is saying, I'll become the serpent. I'll become the cursed one. I'll be lifted up on a pole. And you can't make your way to God. You simply have to look to the pole. Look to the cursed one. Look to that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Or as Paul put in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus became the snake on the pole that by grace through faith, by simply lifting our eyes and looking at Jesus, doing nothing else, no good works, no, no striving, no observing the law, simply looking to God's provision by grace through faith, we would be healed. So we are called to look toward and put our faith in Jesus. Now, this passage doesn't tell us what happens to Nicodemus, but I believe he's on a spiritual journey. He he shows up twice more in John's gospel. In John chapter 7, there's a plot to murder Jesus among the Pharisees where where Nicodemus is, and and he speaks up and he says, hey, doesn't our law say someone has to be tried first? And they turn on Nicodemus and they say, what, are you one of his followers too? And they move on and it does, he doesn't say anything. But you go three years forward from this moment, Jesus has been cursed on a pole. He became sin for us on the pole and he dies on the pole. And a guy named Joseph of Arimathea asked for permission to go get Jesus' body. And in John chapter 19, he brings Nicodemus with him to that pole. Let me, let me just turn there real quick. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds in weight. And I just wonder in that moment as, as Nicodemus and Joseph are making their way up the hill of Golgotha and they see the bodies on the crosses, three of them, and they go up to Jesus and he sees uh, Jesus on a pole. And the law said that anyone, anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And I wonder in that moment, I, we, we're not told, we, we, this is just conjecture in this moment, but I wonder in that moment if he remembers Jesus' words from three years earlier, just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. I, I believe we'll see Nicodemus in heaven, not because of his self-righteousness, but because he looked at Jesus on the pole and he had faith to believe. Well, that's the first two questions. Well, what does it mean to be born again? It means to be regenerated, washed by the Spirit. How does it happen? It happens by grace through faith, by looking at Jesus, trusting in Jesus. But there's a third question that this passage brings up, but it doesn't answer it for us. Only you can answer it. The question is, are you born again? Have you been rescued and redeemed? 
2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Have you trusted in Jesus personally? Or do you have a long list of reasons why Jesus should think you're lovely? Jesus died to save you, to rescue you. Do you have an active trust in him? Not, not in a prayer that you might have prayed as a 12-year-old or, or a baptism that you did or the fact that you're in church. Is Jesus in any way, shape, or form a treasure to you now, today? Or are you just going through the motions? The Bible says you must be born again. Going back to our story with Shannon, so as Jennifer began to sit with her and, and share with her and said, uh, just explain to her the gospel and said, it's not about you. It's not about you being good enough. It's not about you striving. God doesn't uh, make you uh, clean yourself up to come to him. By grace through faith, this moment, you can trust in him, and he'll give you new life. And she did. And now, 10 years later, there is a long list of of seeing the effects of the Spirit in her life and in her family's life, and it's just profound to see God's work in her life. She looked to Jesus, and Jesus gave her new life. Oftentimes, you'll hear Matthew or myself quote Charles Spurgeon. He's kind of the pastor emeritus of this church. And so, um, but did you know how Spurgeon, Spurgeon, 1850s, uh, got saved, uh, and he would preach to thousands upon thousands, and, and the Spirit of God was moving like a mighty wind through his ministry, and thousands were getting saved. But do you know how he got saved? Well, I'll share his story in his words. It was 1850. He, for, for a long time, he, he thought he was righteous in and of himself. But then he read the law, and he saw that he could not follow God and keep God's law perfectly. And so, like a Luther, uh, like an Augustine, he wrestled with his own righteousness. And so he wanted one day, as a 15-year-old, 15-year-old, and as a 15-year-old, he wanted to go uh, to one of the major churches in London and hear a, a way to be saved. But, uh, so he began to make his way into London, but there was a snowstorm that came, and so he kind of had to get diverted to uh, a place called Colchester. And he, had, and he went into a, a little, what he called a little primitive Methodist chapel with like 10 people in the room. And here's what he says. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He, He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. When he had managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, He was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, and it struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, 
This moment you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But once, oh, oh, let's see. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and of the simple faith which looks alone to him. Look. That's what Jesus has told Nicodemus. Just look. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the desert, look to the Son of Man who will be lifted up. Another famous preacher in that time from England, George Whitfield, would make six trips across the Atlantic to preach in the open air among the colonies. Uh, actually, this was about 50 years before. And he would preach most often on this passage, John chapter 3. And he was an amazing orator. He was friends with Ben, ben Franklin. Ben Franklin would go and stand at a crowd of 20,000 and stand in the very back. And he said he could hear every syllable that, that Whitfield preached in that field. And he was just amazed by it. Uh, but one time, uh, a man came up to Whitfield and said, why, why do you always preach on this passage? Why always this text? Why don't you preach something else? He said, well, sir, it's because you must be born again. You must be born again. And to our modern sensibilities, that might be offensive to you. You must be born again. But here's the deal. Here's another way to put it. You can be born again. God didn't owe us in our rebellion anything. The fact that there is a way to be born again is amazing. And the way is simple. Look to Jesus. Look, 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 and live. To that end, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for you if you are a believer and you have been born again. Know this. It was by grace through faith. Know this also. Your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers must be born again. So I'm going to pray that our indifference would fade away to that reality. And for the rest of, rest of you, I'm just going to say you must be born again. It's by grace through faith. And I want to pray for you. And afterwards, if you want to talk to us after the service or on your little connect card, if you want to set up a time to meet with myself or Brad, we'd love to talk to you more about what that means, that you must be born again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, again, I recognize that there is nothing that I would have said here that has any power or authority. But Holy Spirit, I pray that your spirit would send your wind amongst us now. We don't know where you come from or where you're going, but we know when we see the effects of the wind. So Lord, I pray for those of us that know you have been born again, that that would be an increasing treasure and reality in our life, but also to the whatever degree there's indifference in us about the fact that those around us must be born again. I pray that we would repent of that and be a voice to that end. May your spirit move and blow through us even as we tell the story of how you moved and blew through us. And God, for anyone here that uh, has not yet tasted and seen that you are good, would you open eyes and put a new spirit within that person now? 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.